Welcome to the Joan Shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org. One of our special friends has been, over many years, Chuck Todd, the Chief White House Correspondent for NBC News, and one who has been, uh, we were just speaking in my office about how his uh, engagement with digital technology and politics in Washington, in his sort of cheat sheet uh, uh, vehicle for sort of tipping people off about what was important going on today in uh, politics, is something that really shoved uh, Washington forward into the digital age and happened in the early 1990s. And I know sometimes it's hard to believe, but then it was a very, very new thing. It was something that was... We had the, Al Gore hadn't, I mean, he'd invented it. He hadn't invented it yet. No, he'd invented it, but he hadn't figured out how to use it. <laughs> we made people use modems. You download it. We upload it. We, 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 we had floppy disks. That was crazy. We think of Chuck as being a uh, uh, sort of a signifier uh, in terms of national politics. The last time he was with us was not actually here. It was in Denver on Barack Obama's worst night ever, That's probably. Right. Uh, the first uh, debate. Up until the last two weeks. Well, I was about to say that we think we might have been heading for his worst, a new record for worst ever. But uh, who knows what's going to be happening now because of this uh, unusually uh, unexpected possible solution that would rescue him and perhaps his presidency. Anyway, it's a complicated time. Uh, it's a uh, a painful, difficult time, a dangerous time. It's a perfect time for a White House correspondent to uh, enlighten us about what is going on in Washington and what to expect is coming. Well, I'm supposed to talk about media and politics, right? So I was just looking at my Twitter feed uh, and just all the attacks that come with all things media and politics. Imagine what Obama's poll, this is one of the tweets I get just now a few minutes ago. Imagine what Obama's poll numbers would be if the media didn't give him a free pass on virtually everything he's done. Then I've been attacked. Uh, uh, Obama himself slowed down the process, and you helped him do it. Um, Could you speak up, please? Sorry, are you not hearing me very well? Uh, it's amazing the amount of power people feel like uh, we in the media have. I had some really nasty ones, but I guess I've, uh, I've, I've blocked all those, all those folks, all those folks out. Um, I want to thank Harvard for not inviting. Um, the last time you probably you, you left out somebody who was on that panel, not inviting Aaron Sorkin, <laughs> who on this panel. So here we are, right? And, and on this panel, it ended up being Aaron Sorkin attacking me as the representative of all things that are horrible about television media. And of course, Aaron Sorkin, who is, it, it, you give me two years, and I will figure out how to cover a story perfectly as well. And they do a great job on the newsroom of covering these stories two years later. And it's amazing how perfect they are uh, at it. Um, it. You know, I know that I'm like uh, many people in Washington all things focused on Syria, and there's a lot of the, the stories in the moment developing and, and all this stuff. But I actually think there's sort of something interesting that's potentially developed out of this about sort of media and politics and how what, we've, what we're already learning from this process. Um, the biggest thing is how uh, this distrust in government, I mean, 
why is President Obama in the predicament that he's in right now? I mean, we can talk about the red line, but skip the red line thing a minute here. A little um, The predicament of trying to say, normally a U.S. president would say, look at what this guy is doing. This is awful. We've got to hold him accountable. And there would be some rallying to the president's side, some belief that what the president and the government is saying is true, and that, yeah, we're the United States of America, this is what we do. And what's been amazing about this episode is that if, and obviously if you've been following this, you know that distrust in government has been growing, not decreasing, I would argue, over about an eight-year period, right? I, I think it started with Shiva. Um, you know, that, that moment, throwing Katrina, Iraq was eroding, but you throw all that together, and ever since then, what the government says and does there is this deep skepticism. There was a, a moment that Obama had when he got elected of, a, of arguably three or six months where there was some trust in government, but that quickly went away. So we've been at this sort of eight-year cloud of skepticism and uh, we don't trust government. We don't trust government officials. And I think that that's what, like, that, first and foremost, like that's what made the president's job, why he had... You know, now he doesn't have to argue for military strikes tonight, right? But say he did, and he didn't have this, why he was having such a hard time, right? There was this sense that, you know what, I, you know, even if he, what he's saying is true, I don't believe that what they're going to do is what they say they're going to do. And even if they do it, what they say is going to work is not going to work. There's just automatic assumption. Uh, and, and, I, and, and so that's, that's been one part of this. The other part of the serious story that's been intriguing to me as sort of a journalist is watching is watching this debate that I think we're going to have is that is this unique is this public handering that we've seen of Obama unique to Obama or is this actually the new normal on how uh, everything is just done in public now so that it looks like public handering so for instance you know 20 years ago a negotiation between the Russians and you know, between Kerry and his counterpart, might have all happened behind the scenes. There may have been some, you know, what was happening with Congress of congressional leaders got behind something and saying, okay, we're gonna we're gonna put together a resolution. It was a done deal. It was all gonna happen. There wouldn't be this big public debate. There wouldn't be this big. And now every single moment is sort of captured, right? It's either captured on social media. International leaders do this, right? They they use the the media to sort of capture, I mean, look at what Lavrov did, right, the order of events. Kerry sort of openly talks about this idea, um, which clearly had been floated by the Russians to them privately. The Russians say, oh, great, let's grab onto it. Members of Congress go, oh, wonderful, you get, I get my get-out-of-jail-free card, um, and I'm going to grab onto it. And that there, but it was all just sort of out there, and all of it has obviously not helped the president, okay? It's not made him look like uh, a strong leader. It's made him look like he's uh, dithering a little bit that we're seeing the hand wringing. Um, and it's, I'm wondering if it, this is, I know that there, there's some on the right that are trying to say, this is Obama, we told you so, this is what Obama was gonna be. And I'm wondering, no, I think this is the new normal. That this is the way there's automatic skepticism, the way the new, new media culture works is that any incremental update is made public. Uh, major news organizations take an incremental piece of news and blow it up and make it a bigger deal so that there is this sense of of every hour, this change every hour of something new is a bigger deal than it is when all of these little incremental pieces that we're seeing now um, sometimes totally got glossed over 20 years ago 
because there wasn't uh, a media that did this. You know, the filter was in charge, and instead the filter's no longer in charge. It's, it's all this around there. So I, I would just say it's like I think, that it, you know, uh, as, as, acad as uh, for the academics in the room, that the, there is an interesting exercise to do of just sort of examining the media coverage of Syria and the buildup and the, and the political arguments to be done just to see how it's the same and different from what happened, say, during Kosovo and Serbia. Uh, during during that uh, outbreak, or in the run up to Grenada, or in the run up to Panama, um, just all very, very different and very uh, telling. Of, I think about what the state of media is, but then also about what the state of politics is, right? Which is uh, one part that I just glossed over there a minute that I want to come back to, which is this. Think about it. All the congressional leadership. I mean, even McConnell didn't go public at the time, but behind the scenes, everybody had signed on to giving the president this authorization. And you know how many votes in Congress that guaranteed? Four. The four leaders. They could not move a soul. Right? And this is sort of, it was, so we also learned, I think everybody in this room knows that political parties have never been weaker. But it, this is a glaring example of showing just how politically weak, as institutions, the two parties are. The ideologies in this country are hardened. And we, you know, the, the, the left and the right is very hard, very strong, very, very uh, foundational based. But the institutions of the two political parties that represent these ideologies uh, have never been structurally weaker, and their inability to, uh, frankly, uh, govern and make government work is, I think, a long term problem that we have to figure out. Somebody's got to figure out how to solve this. I don't know if it's, a, it's going to be a president. I don't know if it's going to be the people. I don't know if it's going to be a third party. But there's something. This whole thing is broken uh, with, the, with the way that the two, party, the, the two parties work as institutions operationally. I mean, you just look at the president of the United States doesn't even use the Democratic Party anymore to push initiatives. He started his own organization. The Republican Party no longer trusts the, our, you know, Republican leaders no longer trust the Republican National Committee to uh, become uh, places to push uh, even opposition research anymore. Instead, they farmed it out to super PACs. So, you know, it's no wonder that political, that the people that are charged with being the Republican leader in the House or the Democratic leader in the Senate, that they can't corral anybody to do anything uh, anymore because the, the, the entire system has sort of now become this sort of where everybody is their own political party. Every individual elected official now says, well, I've got to start a super PAC, I'm going to start a leadership PAC, I'm going to start a campaign, and I'm going to be my own entity. Uh, and I'm going to or maybe I'll associate myself with some think tank uh, and use it as a way to, to get policy ideas to throw out there, but I'm my own person. I'm not going to bother with the DCCC or the DNC or the RNC or any of these things to sort of get my ideas out there. And so if anybody, if everybody is operating as 435 independent operators, even if it's one is, you know, half of them are under the red tent and half of them are under the blue tent, uh, it, it makes sort of coming up with one strategy, one idea, one proposal nearly impossible. And it's, you know, it's, it's, if, you're, if you're trying to sort of unpack and explain why does Washington not work, you know, I think we have to, you have to keep you have to look back at the at the at the structure of the in some of these institutions. If the two parties were stronger, Washington would look like it was working better. 
and government would look like it was, certainly the legislative branch would look like it's working better. But because the two parties are so institutionally weak, because the public is so skeptical of all things Washington, and therefore allowing the rank and file of these members to feel as if they can just uh, ignore the institutions and ignore the structures, then it becomes this self-fulfilling thing of, of, of where everything is a bit chaotic, everything is, everybody's their own political party, every, everything's their own person, and you're not going to come to an agreement. I mean, I think we're going to, even on Syria, it seemed like that, that at one point there were three or four or five different groups trying to write authorizations. Well, I mean, at, at the end of the day, that is no way to operate American foreign policy. Um, it's certainly not, a, uh, it's not an efficient way uh, to operate American foreign policy. So I apologize a little bit for the ramble there, but I was trying to use Syria to get us into this conversation about, uh, about what's obvious, I think, to everybody in this room, right, which is the, Amer the, the American political system is broken, and we've got to figure out how to fix it. And this is certainly, it's going to hopefully come out of academia that comes up with some ideas to figure out how to fix it. Uh, some of it may come from the grassroots. It's not going to come from Washington. I think that's what we figured out. Uh, it, it, it is interesting to me that we've had uh, three, we're, gonna, we're about to have 24 years of polarizing presidents, all three of whom came in and pledged not to be. <coughs> all were trying to, you know, somehow bring, bring a, a fix Washington. All three of them were, were, were brought in to fix Washington because Washington was out of touch. Clinton, Bush 43, and Obama. In some way, they were all asked and tasked and promised that they were going to come to Washington and change the ways of Washington. And all of them, in some form or another, some of it was self-inflicted, some of it was driven by the two parties, but they've all left us with a generation of polarization, a generation of of feeling as if nothing can get fixed, that Washington is not the answer. Uh, and it certainly, I think, is what le leads to this feeling of, of doom, of sort of gloom uh, about, in the public, about the idea that, that Washington just isn't the, can't get it done. They don't trust in me, so the question is, what, what's going to replace it? What's going to happen next? And I, and I think that um, this is the part that's sort of a, a bit of a, of a riddle for me, is that I, I don't, I feel like the, the country's hungry for this. The politicians are simply scared. They're operating in, in this sort of out of fear right now because of their own political survival. And nobody seems to be willing to, to acknowledge that, the, that they are part of the problem and they've got to you know, uh, fix the structure. And I think part of Obama's problem, for instance, is he was elected to break Washington and now there's an assumption he is Washington. Right, he inherited it, and on one hand, he had to operate with the what's the Rumsfeld line? You have to sort of operate with the with the uh, army you got. You got to be, in, you got to you got to run the Washington you have, not the Washington you want. Is essentially what Obama's stuck in. Um, but he didn't bring in massive change. He didn't come in there and try to uh, and try to break glass and try to break China. Um, he was he's been a pretty cautious guy, and. I think over time that has eroded some of his support. And most recently, the for instance, the NSA story, to me, has been the, that was a, as, as one person put it to me, that was a, now a former Obama advisor, that was a hit to the main engine. 
right? The NSA story was it because it went right. You know, he was supposed to be brought in as the guy that was going to bring transparency to government, honesty to government, and here he was operating uh, in the dark and allowing the NSA to run. And every time he swore this is all they were doing, there'd be another revelation. No, they were doing more, and he'd have to come out and admit, yes, we're kind of doing this too, but here's why it's not as bad as you think it is. And he hasn't recovered from that. And then you throw in the serious situation where he desperately needs to have credibility to sell it to the public, but he's in the middle of losing credibility because they see that they don't believe he came in there. Again, he didn't come in and change the system. He came in and ran the system that he inherited, whether it's drones, whether it's NSA. Uh, and it's, it, I guess I would say it's, it's been sort of Obama's, if there's going to be a fundamental failing of his presidency, it's going to be this sense that he didn't live up to that one ideal that he promised, right, which is that he was going to come in and, and massively change Washington in different ways, make Washington think differently. If anyways, he got stuck in the same polarized ideological fights that Bill Clinton got into, that George W. Bush got into, that arguably, for, at times, Ronald Reagan got into, that basically it ended up being more of the same, even though uh, it seemed he would be different because simply, oh, well, uh, maybe it'll be different because this guy wasn't of Washington. He wasn't there very long. Uh, maybe the fact that uh, it'll be a shock to the system that it's an African-American now leading the country rather than another white guy, that that will, uh, that that will shake things up. Uh, and, and it hasn't happened. So the question now is sort of, now what do we get? And what are we going to have? I think the, the institutions desperately, you're going to start seeing some, I think, disruptions in the institutions. I think we saw a little bit of it with Rand Paul. I think we're going to see some of it with Cory Booker. Uh, the whole millennial way of thinking, of social media of thinking, which is sort of an instantaneous uh, sense of, of change, that you've got to you know, the, the impatience of the millennials, that they sit there and, and think, why are we tolerating these inefficiencies? Why don't we just go and start this up? Or why don't we try this? Or why don't we go around and do that? Um, that it's, it seems to be a bigger, maybe I'm being hopeful here, but that the millennials seem to be a little more motivated to uh, not tolerate uh, these inefficiencies, not tolerate this uh, sense of, of, well, that's just always the way things were, so why don't we just keep marching slowly down that path? And I think you'll see certain people, I feel like Rand Paul sort of understands, and that's why he has gotten more traction than maybe people in Washington don't understand. Cory Booker could be, seems to be somebody who uh, practices his politics very transparently, very in the open, uh, probably will be a little bit of a bull in the china shop uh, when he gets into the Senate. But that could be a good thing. I mean, I'm kind of, I, I, I kind of think that you could have Booker and Paul could do things to the U.S. Senate that the U.S. Senate desperately needs, um, which is if it's you know forcing a shutdown of the Senate to have a debate about drones, as the brand Paul did, or if Cory Booker, who has said he watched what Paul did and <coughs> admires what Paul did, may not agree on the you know on that topic whether he agrees or disagrees. It doesn't matter. That that's how he believes. He should act as a U.S. senator. Senator, he's called him. He, he's called himself. He wants to be a disruptive force, and that is sort of the. Uh, you know, while he's my generation, a Gen Xer, he, that is what the millennials I think view themselves as, right? A little bit of a disruptive 
it's time to be disruptive. It's time to be a disruptive force. And what it's going to mean for our politics is I think it's going to be, we're going to be changing in ways we're not quite sure. It's, it used to be you could come in a lecture like this and you had a pretty good idea of how things were going to go for the next three or four years. I don't think we know because I think we're, it's that tumultuous right now. It's that uh, unstable. Uh, and there is this populace out there that feels a lot of it has to do with economic insecurity um, that is going to be open to uh, new forces if, if, if folks can make the case. Um, they're not going to, because of this automatic distrust from Washington, they'll be open if somebody's coming at them from a different, uh, a different place or, or, or a, different, uh, a different area. So um, I like to think that we're in an exciting time in politics, but it's a little bit scary. Uh, it's particularly scary for the Washington crowd. It's certainly scary for the media crowd. Um, I joke that I have three titles, so they can only lay me off one at a time. Um, it, what, uh, when you think about the speed with which even campaigns were conducted from 2000 to 2004 to 2008 to 2012, it moves so quickly. I, the idea that we, I don't think we have any idea what 2016 is going to look like. Um, more so that it, as much as, and I, and, I, and I don't say that just to cop out, I think it's, I think that's ra radical. I mean, uh, whether it's third party, whether it's, uh, you know, whether you see both parties blow up into ideological fights, whether we see that one of the parties crumble under the weight of its sort of establishment, uh, I, I think sort of, all, I think we're at a point where all bets are off, uh, and the ability to, to organize quickly, see see some, whether it's a new candidate, a new idea, a new something, the ability to get it out there and become and get into the mainstream quickly uh, has never been easier, which means the ability to be a disruptive force uh, gives you, in many ways, gives you the great advantage uh, in, in politics. But the question is going to be, what's that force going to look like? It's obviously going to be in response to what's wrong what, or what's perceived to be wrong, whether it's this economic uh, uncertainty, which, by the way, is still the, you know, we're talking about Syria, we're talking about trust in government, and there's certainly plenty of distrust. We're about to be at the fifth anniversary of the financial collapse, and we're all going to write the same story, which is, boy, Wall Street's recovered, Main Street hasn't. Um, because it's true, Main Street really hasn't, right? We still have, an, we still have this sort of, America has this economic uh, anxiety, I guess you would say, you know, anxiety complex, right? We don't, know, we don't know what we are anymore. We're not quite sure what our role in the world should be. We, we know we should be number one, but what do we make anymore? We're not quite sure of that. And if you go to any middle town in America, I keep going back to Middletown because I, I went back and reread the book. And if any of you have done this, it's arguably the most important political science book written in the 20th century. Middletown was about the, the growth of the suburbs and it sort of was the first great change of, you know, changing of the American demographics and, and it sort of led to all this changing in, in the way political voting patterns happened and where people lived and how people got around. Well, all those new towns that were created in the 20th century are all, in a lot of places, dying. And because manufacturing's gone, they don't know what they are, they've all been replaced by the same thing, right, which is either community colleges or 
uh, ways to take care of people and help, but they're, people that live in these towns are the ones that feel like they can't get ahead. They're the ones that have lost the trust the most in, in, uh, in Washington. And they're the ones that are going to be the most open to saying, you know what, I give up on them, let's try something new. If somebody gives them something new that seems believable. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's going to be the challenge for this next group of political leaders that want to be president, right? Which is, how are they going to make those people that live in these, in, in the heartland of America, that feel as if they have no chance of getting, that their kids don't even have a chance at really climbing the economic ladder anymore. How are they going to get ahead? How are they going to uh, uh, find a way to do this that makes them uh, feel as if um, that, that the American dream is still alive? And, so, and who's going to tap into that and be a, a, a credible person? I can tell you who I don't think is who I think is going to have the hardest time in this environment sending that message, and that's going to be Hillary Clinton. It boggles my mind that we're all so assuming that she is, that the presidency has basically been gift wrapped for her. And, and, and maybe it is. And maybe the cracking the glass ceiling is that important to women in America. And I'm not, but, you know, if I were to tell you that in 2016, the answer to be America's second 21st century president is suddenly to go back a half generation, which what we'd be doing, which would be an odd thing for our country to do, to actually go backwards. I know Obama's technically a baby boomer, but he's more of a, you know, to me, if you couldn't get, dra if you couldn't get drafted in Nam, you're not a baby boomer, politically. <laughs> no, I mean, I just don't, you know, so he couldn't, right? He's more closer to my, you know, he's certainly closer to age in me than he is my dad, who knew his draft number uh, by memory for 20 years before he died. So, I mean, he, you know, that, that, that sort of imprint is, is, is it. so the idea that, that she's the one that is going to be representing the 20, the, becoming the second president elected in the 21st century uh, in this environment with this type of new, new way people consume information, the impatience of government, the expectations of Washington, uh, I couldn't, th I couldn't, if I gave you that resume, you'd all laugh. You know, if I gave you the resume without the name, but you throw the name in, and everybody's like, well, no, 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 but she's going to be president. But everything about her resume, to me, screams the exact wrong person uh, for the times and for what the country's looking for. So it was a little rambling, and I apologize for that. Um, I've been a little distracted by, by Syria by the fact that I was down 51 points by Peyton Manning on my fantasy football team, but won. <laughs> Somehow I won, and I was facing a guy that had Peyton Manning and seven touchdowns. So that was helpful. Um, but there it is. What's that? Keeping first things first. Keeping first things first. It was a big, it was a big win for me in my, in my fantasy football week one. Uh, but it's all out there, and uh, hopefully I've <coughs> triggered a million questions or a million ways that people can disagree with me. What? I was just happy that I saw Joe Klein nod once. All I wanted was one nod from him. You got a couple, and he, he was nodding at something that I have genuine skepticism about. And uh, I've heard the theory that Hillary Clinton is the obvious wrong choice and can't possibly be the right person. And I, it seems to me, just intuitively, that, that uh, there's a kind of a, a reverse spin of sort of among the, the pundits in Washington that makes something as predictable and obvious as Hillary Clinton obviously wrong. I would submit that Hillary represents uh, 
the new thing that Hillary represents, of course, is the fact that she's a, a, a woman. Two, she represents prosperity because I think the pro campaign that she's going to be running is going to be, you know, let the good times roll and let's go back to the era when genuinely the United States was prosperous. Maybe not tr a legitimate thing, but I mean, I think she's got plenty to run on, number two. And number three, I'm trying to think, I have yet to hear of a plausible uh, competitor to her, one for the Democratic, I don't think Cory Booker can unseat Hillary, and I don't know anyone else who fits the categories that you're talking about on either party's side that I think would be plausibly able to overcome the things that I think she really does have, which principally is an enormous yearning on a part of American women to have a woman's presence. Look, I, to me, I, I hear you, and I, and, I, and I know that, and I think the women thing is not, and, and if there's anything that does scream 21st century, it's, and I, I look, I come from a network right now that basically the decision was made, well, the men screwed up this network. We're now going to put the put women in charge, and women are in charge of, of my network and everything. I don't mean I'm not saying that. I mean that there there that was that mindset that was there that you know the the the, 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 the ego of men, the way men um, certainly in politics um, their egos do get in the way. Their own personal foibles seem to cause more political problems. Women are less likely to get caught up in sex scandals. Less likely to get caught up in uh, in uh, what, what is the joke though? You'll know that women have really made it in politics when we have our first major woman sex scandal. Um, <laughs> but that that you know there there isn't this this sense of, of greed that's out there. And I mean that sort of the, the in the Michael Douglas greed is good aspect where you know male politicians just want to get there, whether it's power, whether it's money, whether it's whatever it is. That women aren't driven by that same those same uh, animal-like needs, or whatever you want to call it. Um, but that assumes that, that, that she runs that. I, you know, I hear you, and I, I just, I don't, you know, the, the, the country wants a new style of leadership. And she's, you know, how is she going to be able to say, well, I'm going to bring in new people, and I'm going to bring, or is it going to be all looking backwards? It's tough to run a campaign to say, you said the good old days, let's go backwards. Let's. Let's All go I'm back to the Clinton days. I guess Reagan did it. I'm just saying. Reagan kind of ran a, let's go back to when things were great in the 50s. All I'm saying is it she seems like an obzone favorite to get the Democratic nomination. I, I that agree. means she's only got to defeat one person. And that one person has to be someone who appeals to more Americans than Hillary does. And I think that's going to be an uphill fight for anybody. I really do. Well, I think the profile of the person, if there's anybody that's close right now, and the reason the media gravitates toward him is because he does fit the profile, is Christie in this respect. So if you believe that we elect presidents, we say to ourselves, we're, we elect, when we elect a new president, whether it's the same party or different parties, we, uh, we pick somebody who is uh, the opposite of whatever personality, what part of a president's personality we didn't like. Okay, so what was it that, you know, so o Obama, the intellectual, the pro pro professor, was the exact opposite of Bush, the cowboy, the, you know, not as intellectually curious, right? That's the stereotype. Bush, as far as Clinton, what, what was his big opposite? He was just moral. This was a good Christian man who wasn't, wasn't screwing around on his wife. With Clinton, you know, H.W. Bush was this elitist, um, wouldn't, uh, you know, wouldn't know a 
wouldn't know fried good fried chicken in the backwoods of Arkansas if it you know if it if it slapped him in the face. Bill Clinton was like ah, you know he was sort of more of a man of the people. How was Bush different from you know when Bush uh, beat Reagan? He, his whole campaign was kinder, gentler. That was about saying I'm different from Reagan. The, the parts of Reagan you didn't like, where he was a little bit uh, uh, too aggressive with his conservatism. I'm not going to be that guy. Um, so you can keep going on. So we do that. Well, so let me, let so me how is Hillary the opposite? I mean, that's going to be the, the struggle there, right? So if you do that, I've painted, to me, I've painted, a, I think I've, for now you say, I would say I, the picture of the opposite of Obama, what people, what bothers them about Obama. God, he doesn't seem to take the heads of, of Boehner and McConnell and smash them together and say, come on, guys, let's get to work. Well, Chris Christie looks like a guy that would take them by the collars and <laughs> crack their skulls and say, come on, let's give me a goddamn debt ceiling raise. Uh, enough of this crap, right? That that's, and that, you know, Obama doesn't lose his temper enough in public and Obama hand rings and so we're going to want Christie who looks like he doesn't do that. But at the same time, the public likes the fact that Christie's not always oh, not one of those Republicans. He's from the Northeast, so okay. So, well, let, let me let, let me. And I do think, as a as a contrast to the Hillary right now, I say this because all these politicians they can fly so close to the sun, they could be gone tomorrow. Like I assume Ted Cruz, uh, you know, could easily you know remember when Sarah Palin was relevant and how quickly she went away. Is every chance that Ted Cruz? or Cory Booker or Elizabeth Warren. I mean, I, I don't want to do this because I know someone on Twitter is going to say, hey, Chuck Todd said Ted Cruz is going to be irrelevant. Um, but it's very possible that in six months, one of these people that seem very relevant in the moment is Icarus. They fly too close to the sun and they burn out, right? Sarah Palin was that. Uh, Howard Dean was that. You, you know, we, there are always constant examples of that. And I'm sure there are three, four people. Christie could be that. I think he looks a little bit more like a survivor. I thought he was going to be that. He looks more like a survivor than I think uh, I thought maybe two years ago. Well, of course we don't know what's going to happen. Let me, let me open it to questions, because I know that uh, there are plenty of people out there who want to ask. If you have a question, if you would come to the mic, please. Hi. Uh, my name is Alex Jorgen. I'm a joint student between the uh, Kennedy School and the Business School. My question is, given your discussion of the Syria, of the media, of how the media has covered Syria, do you think that diplomacy is dead and it will not be possible to conduct sort of diplomatic negotiations anymore and the sort of dirty business of diplomacy because everything will be tweeted? Well, it's funny you say that. It's certainly why, why can't, congr why can't um, big deals in Congress happen anymore? And they can't happen anymore because the minute you come up with a compromise, somebody tweets out the compromise, the compromise becomes a litmus test or becomes a, hey, Senator X, do you agree that Senator Y agreed to you know, only cut half of what you wanted to cut? No, I went to the floor and said that I was going to do that or nothing. You know, Jim DeMint had a town hall in my and I was there to do that. So, for instance, you can't do the great big compromise bills in Congress anymore, right? Uh, because um, either you can't buy people off, right? That doesn't look good. You can't buy votes. Well, I mean, look at health care. What Ben Nelson did uh, in health care was called the Cornhusker kickback at the time. He got extra Medicaid funding. Ten years ago, he'd have been a hero in Nebraska. Look at this. He brought back more money to the state of Nebraska. Well, that's no, no longer part of the reward structure of American politics, and that's fine. Uh, and certainly we in the media have decided it's no longer a reward structure, so we, we're going to shine a spotlight on it. Same thing with diplomacy, right? It's going to be harder. We, you know, much of our diplomacy, arguably, is the way we used to operate uh, in getting big congressional deals, right? You just bought 
You just bought somebody off. You know, we essentially bought Mubarak off. You could argue, uh, in order to uh, in order to uh, have a peace deal with Israel. You know, that wasn't just because Mubarak said, yeah, that, or at the time Sadat, that oh, that's a good idea. No, we bought off Egypt. We bought off the the political system. Can you do that anymore? And I think you're right. I think that this is sort of this is why you know. So the rules are changing. The current people in charge. Uh, are frustrated that the rules have changed while they're in power. And you see this, like I hear the White House going, I can't believe we can't do these things anymore. And it's like, my God, you got in there because you were advocating for changing the rules and you were advocating for getting rid of this. But that, let's, let's set that aside. So I do think that it makes all of this public diploma, uh, this private diplomacy much harder to do uh, anymore because it's not just the American media and the American electorate that wants more transparency wants instantaneous uh, information, it's the world. And it's all there. So, you know, I, I think it, it does make this transactional way where you used to be able to say, even a guy like Putin, you'd say, well, we well, can deal with him because he's a transactional guy. But the, but, the, but the public doesn't tolerate transactions anymore. <coughs> uh, that has, there's unintended consequences that come with that. And I think we're in the middle of seeing that right now. My question is about your role as the Chief White House Correspondent, and I'm curious right, First how of all, let's, let's have full disclosure. I was an intern with Chuck Todd and the Daily Rundown this summer. There's no way we, I didn't want to be accused of planning a question. We, we expect, we expect a very, very <laughs> incisive question here about the way this actually works. Uh, my name's Carly, um, and uh, in your role as White House Correspondent, how you feel about uh, more seats being given to more outlets and how that's affected the relationship between the press and the press secretary and is that good for our system or is it creating a difficult environment? Well, there's not more outlets. There's just different outlets. So, you know, it's interesting if you look at the first four rows uh, of the White House press corps, you know, Cleveland Plain Dealer used to have a seat. The St. Louis Post Dispatch used to have a seat. The Minneapolis Star Tribune used to have a seat. It, you know, now it's Yahoo News that has a seat. It's Politico that has one. It's, so it's the the amount of people in that room is arguably the same. The the it's where they come from and their mindsets are are different. The biggest problem I see in that press room right now is for all of the different individuals are in that room, there is it, they all, they're all, we're all, uh, it's not just that they're in the Washington bubble, but their editors are in the Washington or New York bubble. They don't have bosses back in the heartland in St. Louis or back in Minneapolis or back in Cleveland sort of forcing a different perspective into the press room that would be more helpful to get us all out of out of groupthink or, or make sure we don't slip into groupthink. So, you know, I'm all for more out there. I think the problem is, is that it, what's happened is that there's so many of the, of the geographic diversity of news organizations that we used to have is no longer there. I mean, now it's just the Acela Corridor that's overrepresented in that room and people who live and think just of living, of people that live in Washington, New York, and yes, Boston, since you're on the Acela Corridor, I throw you in there too. But it is just, you know, it, I, I can tell you this, I never feel like 
the views of all of my dead relatives that are buried in Iowa are represented in there. Like, I don't feel like, you know, you don't see a lot of questions about the farm bill being asked because there's nobody who's got a boss who's an editor of a newspaper in the state of Iowa being asked those questions. And by the way, the fact that we don't have a farm bill is causing all sorts of problems for the agricultural sector in this country. And so that would, you know, that, that is a, that is something that at some point has got to correct itself. You know, I, we in the media are not very good at it. Hopefully, we, we, don't, we don't do this well ourselves sometimes. At some point, I hope there is some sort of informational revolution that says, okay, let's start up a, you know, an, a, 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 let's start up something <coughs> that actually represents the views of, middle, uh, of people that live in the middle of America, not middle America, the middle of America, and make sure they're being represented in Washington the news media. And that, that, that's a big problem right now. And I think it's one we're not we're not facing up to enough. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Uh, my name's Rick Dubard. I'm seventy-one, uh, class of seventy-one, uh, from the law school. So I am a baby boomer. Yes, you are. <laughs> you got yeah. a you got a lottery number. I got a oh, yeah. I, no, I have a, a service number. <laughs> you yeah. Thank you. Uh, I'm happy to hear that maybe I should forget about being so upset because things have changed from when I graduated from law school and expecting things to be as they were then, uh, you know, Western Electric, Westinghouse, uh, U.S. Steel, all those companies were hiring people right. and they were providing jobs. So that takes a, a load off my mind that I don't have to worry about that anymore because there's a new paradigm. There's a new way of, of looking at things, and that's fine. I say all that just to ask this question. Is there anything you see now that you can think that Obama did, President Obama has done, that history will say, yes, he did a good thing there, a great thing there? Oh, I, you know, I... Look, I think look, I think there's nothing been harder than the Arab Spring, and I think we have to remember that Syria, Egypt, all this stuff, and, and we'll set the Arab Spring aside. I think he, what's interesting about the Arab Spring, and I want to set that, just deal with that a minute, because I think it's it's going to be something that's, the Arab Spring is going to be a 25-year challenge for this country. Um, and so uh, I think that that's going to be, um, that, that he will, he, history will be kinder to him in some of the some of the decisions he made, you know, than at the time than some people are, you know, over questioning things now, whether it's Syria, whether it's Egypt, and things like that. I think history only because nobody would have said it's what's the right what's the right move in the moment, or you know, I, my guess is instinctively, he when it came to the Middle East, he I think he came at it that he was going to be a, a Bush forty one kind of guy, meaning stability first, not a promoter of democracy. I think the Arab Spring made him think, well, you know what, maybe democracy's on the move. I want to be on the right side of history. Now, I think he realizes, you know what, I should have gone back to the stability first mindset. And I think that's where, that's where his head is at, right? And he's, he's back to sort of, his instinct was to be that. He's back to where his instinct. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. I'm, I'm in the middle of trying to finish a book sort of on, on, on Obama and on the, on the presidential years so far, so the presidency so far. And, uh, 
you know, his, his, his legacy, for better or for worse, short term is going to be everything was a struggle, a political struggle for him. And there's going to be multiple ways to look at it. Is, was it a political struggle because, uh, because he was inexperienced at practicing politics? Was it a struggle because of race? I think, I think there's going to be an argument that it was a little bit of all in. Uh, he certainly could have been better at, at politics. Was it a struggle because he came in like a lot of outsider presidents do and think that their way is the right way until they run into the brick wall of Congress and then have to regroup and, and figure out? You know, there's going to be that argument too. Um, is there going to be a, a, a regret? And I do hear it from Obama people now that they didn't try to shake things up even more and really say to themselves, screw it, let's be a one-term president and see and just just fire on all cylinders all the time until we burn out because that's why the country elected them. Um, rather than shifting to re-election mode, arguably in the middle of their second year and sort of sort of easing in a, a little bit. But let's not, I mean, if, if healthcare works, it's, it's not a small deal. This is a huge deal. The question is if it works, you know, and I, I'm more optimistic than some. I mean, I think that ultimately people, people want it. People, I think, want healthcare coverage. <laughs> they want it to work. So I think it, 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 if the political, the politicians get out of the way for just a couple of months and see if it, and, and give it a chance to, to go, uh, and it works, that's gonna be, and that may be his biggest policy legacy. That's not a small thing. That's a pretty, pretty large thing. Um, you know, but that, that if, when you say what's the big legacy piece, He's, you know, at the end of the day, the first line of his of his presidential biography is still going to be the first African American president, and that's, you know, that somebody had to be first, and and you know, what it does mean is he opened the door so that the next uh, non-white president doesn't have to deal with half of the garbage that he had to deal with being the first. Suddenly, they're going to be always judged more on more on the substance and more on their ideology and more on their politics. Everything from what we unintentionally, I think, do in the media, we, we're, we all cover him sometimes too often through the prism of race. And I think part of that is my bosses. I always joke about this. You know, we had this huge argument back in, in 08, arguments that's the right word, debate. And I would joke, anybody over the age of 50 thought um, Obama was going to lose. And everybody under the age of 50 said, out of your mind, of course he's going to win. Um, but everybody over the age of 50 was an adult in the 60s. That's right. Okay? Those of us that I went to an integr I, you know, little did I know, I grew up in Miami. Miami integrated uh, their school system about two years before I entered kindergarten. But I didn't know it was only two years before. For me, it felt like 50 years before, right? It was no, so I grew up in it. So, any, you know, that was sort of an interesting dividing line. There was also this, you know, fear of, I remember. Older folks at, at NBC always feared for his safety. And people under 50 said, guys, you know, again, that's life experience of the 60s versus not. So when I say that is I think we can't discount breaking that barrier, but also it'll get, a, you know, the next person, the next non-white person that becomes president of the United States, we're not going to cover as much through that lens. And that's going to make for an easier 
some in some parts of the presidency easier for that next person. Okay. Sorry for the long windy answer. Hey, thank you. Uh, my name is Dylan here. Um, in, a, in a media landscape that's defined a lot by soundbite and snippet, and in a world where constituents and voters can choose who they want to listen to and who they want to ignore because everyone can have a platform with Twitter and Facebook, so you can essentially pick and choose. How would you advise candidates and elected officials in that environment to lead or to be a part of a all-encompassing, inclusive, thoughtful, lengthy conversation. Because it feels like when you watch a lot of the stuff on TV, and obviously not directly to you, but a lot of times it's hard to get anything more than a two-minute right. rundown of the talking points. And I feel a lot of the problems that we're talking about today directly stem from the fact that we can't have or we're not having a thoughtful conversation right. that's actually being propagated forward through the media channels that are currently available. So how do you, how do you, as a media person, advise candidates who want to start that thoughtful conversation? Well, uh, you know, not enough of them actually want to do it, because the ones that want to start the thoughtful conversation have plenty of ways to do it. What I would say is that there's never, it's never been easier to start a conversation. It's never been easier to get an idea out there. It's never been, that's not the issue. The issue is there are too many politicians that are afraid of this new media environment, that are afraid of a two-way conversation. They're afraid of... They're also, you know, remember, politicians have a different DNA than normal people. I always say that. To run for elective office, and my apologies to anybody in here that either wants to run for elective office or it's some Melody Jackson part. Um, that, sorry, it's somebody I haven't seen in I am 10 years. That's why I asked. So. Um, <laughs> is, is that um, politicians, they, they can't take criticism and they can't handle it. I, I think what, what's interesting, I think that if, if I were advising a, a politician running in 2016 or running in 2014, I would say that the the recipes for success is going to be the, not just the appearance of being open, but actually being open, being comfortable, sort of, think McCain 2000 on steroids, um, which is open everywhere, not being afraid to, whether it's to go on, uh, if you're a Democrat going on O'Reilly or if you're a Republican going on Rachel, you know, being comfortable with your own ideas, being comfortable on all platforms, being comfortable taking incoming, right? Instead, there's too many politicians that want to control their narrative and control their method. Well, if you do that, then you aren't going to succeed in, in getting and in, in sort of earning the trust of this new generation, which does expect a two-way conversation all the time, does expect to be able to beat you up a little bit, but respects you more if you let them beat you up, if you don't block them on Twitter, for instance. Um, and so I, I, I just sort of, I, I take issue with the idea that somehow the media is responsible that we've never made it easier to get ideas out. We've never made it more, there are, there are more opportunities now for a politician to get their idea out there than ever before politicians <laughs> decide to do it. And the reward, I think there is a huge reward structure for people that are, for the politician that runs that is gonna be not worried about a protective pool. So, so for instance, like I, I, I can picture this already. I know, this, I know how the Clinton campaign's gonna get structured. And, and she's gotta figure out how to get out of her comfort zone. Her comfort zone is going to be the bubble. It's going to be make sure to limit the amount of interaction she has with reporters. Well, what does that do? It means the gotcha question becomes more valuable. The less access you have to somebody, the more the gotcha question becomes more valuable to the reporter. Because you think, geez, what are they gonna do? If you're of the John McCain school of 2000 version of it, not the one in 08, but the 2000 version of them, which I think Christie has the capability of being, Cory Booker might have the capability of being, 
um, and you're and you're open and you're transparent and you're willing to sort of engage and frankly tell a reporter, well, that's a stupid question the way Christie does sometimes. There's going to be more of a reward for it, and you're not going to. Um, it's just going to. It's just going to fit the times better. I think the public's going to respond to that better. They just expect that more. So my advice to all politicians would be, if you're not comfortable uh, being criticized and doing that back and forth just on Twitter or on a back and forth and you want to try to control your narrative, then don't run for office. You know, just in light of what you're talking about, as you know, uh, Crossfire is getting ready to start up again. And they're going to do it a little differently this time, though. And they're doing something that's surprising to me that's not been done before. They're going to end it with what they call ceasefire. They're going to end it with a segment at the end where the people on both sides are going to find common ground. They're going to see what they share. It seems to me that if that were the end of, you know, meet the press, all the media, every one of these kind of uh, conversations about politics, if there was a, a moment at the end to say, well, look, okay, we disagree on these things, but what do we agree on? That could, that could be something that would be genuinely helpful to this uh, to this polarization and the idea that we can find, you know, right. common ground with people who don't necessarily agree with it. But this is where the political, the election system is broken, right, which is the, the reward structures in the primary and then you get, you know, it doesn't matter, you're right, the common ground can be met well, in the middle. This is something that the media the has some control. The middle, see, I, I, you know, it's I funny. You could ask the question. I, 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 think the, I think plenty of us in the media do. We do try to find common ground in the middle of it. I, I, I sort of, the idea that they're the first one, I think a lot of us in the media are looking forward to, okay, well, what would get you to yes, or what would get you, you know, what is the right, you know, when you have these interviews back and forth. It's like Charlie or, Rose, but solving Syria. There you go. But um, it, it, what seems easy then, when you see it play out in a campaign now, where the reward system is a primary uh, challenge, where you just get pummeled for looking like you're working with the other side, where that is a negative, and right now that's the case on the right, It'll be the case on the left. It's a cyclical thing. Then, you know, it's going to be. A, it, it, I, I don't see how this how this ends, and it's, especially if the if the two political parties being so weak, where they can't sort of, you know, force a situation where you, they want to, you know, have candidates that are more in the middle, more representing the views of the middle. So, the, you know, to well, me, I'll, the I'll, middle of the the middle, the, the so-called radical moderates need to rise up and demand well, this. It's going to be interesting to see if this actually works. Yeah. No, you're up. I'm David Giroux, um, class of 72 from a place down the river, MIT. Um, and uh, I've lived in France for two years. I've lived in Canada for 20. And the whole rest of the world can't understand why the US would like to spend twice as much on health care for results that are much worse. And um, my question is this uh, talk of the, uh, defunding health care by removing it from the budget and submitting a budget that doesn't have it. Um, do you think Obama will stand up to that? Do you think he will start to knock some heads together? Will he be less no, of a compromiser or will he fight? Their mindset on, on health care is just implement it and as it, it you know when, when it doesn't collapse that that will, that will slowly that over time that it will it will you know just keep watering the tree the roots will grow and and so that they're not I mean they're not at all don't forget this you know one of the things and this is this is where the media is at fault we have spent too much time covering this um, angle 
it is, this is a minority of a minority of a minority that is actually calling for the defunding, okay? It is, there are, the votes aren't there in the House, the votes aren't there in the Senate. Frankly, the votes aren't there inside the Senate Republican Conference if they had a vote inside. So it is, it is one of those things that I think we in the media have uh, fallen for. That, that's one where we've fallen for it and we've given it more attention. It's, that's, it's not a, none of it's serious. But if, if there's not a willingness to compromise, will they ever get a budget? Well, I, look, this goes to the whole idea that I was talking about earlier, right, which is this, this sense of, of there's so many elected officials now that believe that they're their own political party um, that no longer believe in the mindset that elections have consequences, that everything's been litigated. Remember when John Boehner said, yeah, you know what, we're done with health care, and then he got pummeled in his own party for saying that, that he wasn't going to fight more in health care. I mean, the Supreme Court had weighed in. Obama got reelected. He just sort of said, okay, now we're going to try to change it. Uh, when he couldn't do that, I think that sort of shows you that here was a party leader that couldn't tell his party what to do, that couldn't lead his conference a, a certain way. Um, and, you know, people might say, well, why can't Boehner be a better leader? Well, it's just people are their own entities anymore. So, and then they have found, found their way to sort of either get, and get rich by being, doing this themselves. When I say get rich, it's not necessarily financial. It could be with political uh, power or get rich with fame or get rich with um, the ability to, to uh, be invited to do town halls with Jim DeMint, um, uh, with your father as you're uh, introducing you. I think I'm hinting at who, who I'm talking about here. But um, it, it is, it is it, you know, we're, we're, you know, his reward structure is, is different. He doesn't see a reward structure by playing uh, nice inside the party, nor does he believe he was elected to fix health care in a way that might, hey, I might, I wish health, I wish Obamacare did X. I'm going to introduce a piece of legislation that actually might make it do X. No, let's just get rid of it. Um, it's better politics for them. This is a follow-up to the first question. Um, you seem to believe that the transparency and diplomacy that's happened in Syria is a result of telecommunications technology, tweeting and all of these kinds of things, and social media. I, I see a direct correlation between that and the Snowden effect. And for me, the Snowden effect is that not only did he blow the cover for the NSA, but he blew the cover for everybody around the world. And you can see this in the coverage in France and Germany and England and other places. Everybody is watching all the time. Nothing is secret anymore. And so why should diplomacy be secret? I, I, you know what? I think it's a very fair angle. I mean, I, I don't... I, I, it, it's an interesting, I mean, this, you know, I do think Snowden has had a, um, like I said, I, I go back to what I said before, I think it's had a gigantic impact on Obama and his politics, and I think it explains more of his political problem right now than anything else. It's not any of this other summer slump. I think that that's been the baseline problem, hit the direct entry. Um, I think it's a fair point. WikiLe you could throw WikiLeaks into the same thing, which is this idea that nothing is done behind the scenes anymore. Um, and if you want to say that that's due to Snowden and WikiLeaks, new media, you know, I think it all contributes. Last question. Um, my name is Amber. I'm a current student here at the Kennedy School, and I have a fairly broad question for you. I'm wondering how you. I have a fairly rambling answer for you. Actually, <laughs> um, I'm wondering how you define journalism today, and whether there's still value to professional journalists because. 
if our view of what a journalist does being getting the news out to people is provided through so many other means, um, what role then should the professional journalist play? Well, let me just tell you what I believe my role is, and, and maybe that'll help, because I think everybody has a different, you have different roles at different places. So what I always say with television news is that I'm not paid to break news, I'm, I'm, I'm paid to explain the news. Uh, I call it the breaking why. We're not the breaking what, because the what's everywhere. Everybody's got access to the what. But hopefully the value we add, and if we're successful, is that we do, that you trust us to tell you why. And that it's our job, it's the breaking, you know, the breaking why, is what I always say. It's like, so Obama did this, why did he do it? And ultimately, like, to me, that I always say, I know that, you know, traditional journalism, you know, the who, what, where, you know, you, you answer all those questions. I always say to myself, ultimately, it's you know, motivate, particularly in political journalism, that motivation is everything, right? You you have to understand motivation to understand why a congressional deal happened, to understand why an, uh, a certain voting electorate voted a certain way. You know, ultimately, you have to a a ask answer simply the why question. So um, that's not to say that if I weren't, if you know, I think the the folks with you know the at AP or the New York Times, since they are you know. They are still producing the. Uh, they are of, of if it's all a commodity, but they have, they have more of it than most, or they have more eyeballs than most. They also are, they they're, they better get the what right too. Not to say that we do, we we have you know we got to get that right also, but I think people turn on television for more of the explanation and more of the why. So, you know, I do think part of it it depends on. on where you work, uh, you know what what your uh, what your beat is, but ultimately, like I said, I think that that nowadays the what's everywhere. Everybody can tell you the what. Um, what you get paid for, good or bad, is the what. Chuck, thank you. Really appreciate you being here. <laughs> Sorry.